Hi, I'm Jake Hanrahan from Popular Front, and you're listening to the Just Checking In podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by men, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. I am your host, as always, Freddie Cocker. As you may know by now, each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have Anata and chat about everything mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. My special guest for this episode, Venters, is a great man doing unbelievable things for men's mental health. He is so productive and has grown his platform so quickly. Sometimes it makes me wonder if I'm doing enough for Vent, but he is a great lad and his journey is absolutely amazing. His name is Tom Home and he is the founder of Blokes. Blokes is a safe, supportive and non-judgmental space for men to open up about their mental health, connect with others and tell a male tale. Body image, anxiety, agoraphobia, self-care, depression and PTSD and work-life balance as well, are on the menu for today's show. This is how our conversation went. Tom, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. Thanks so much for coming on. First off, how are you? Did you get to enjoy your Christmas at all? And how are you feeling right now? Yeah, no, good. Thanks, Fred. Thanks very much for having me on the pod. I really appreciate it. First of all, Christmas was a bit of a weird one, wasn't it? Because although I suppose technically it was Christmas, it obviously didn't really feel like it. I think people were so separated from their friends and family. And I think obviously it was so different to how we would normally have Christmas that it just kind of was tainted a little bit. In terms of how I am right now, yeah, I mean, I'm okay. I mean, I suppose it's a bit weird because this lockdown, for me, it's almost felt like it's just been the norm for the last last part of a year. So you kind of learn to, I suppose, adapt and learn how to, and, and I hate the phrase the new normal, but it, it is the new normal. And I think it's all about finding ways that work for you and finding things that I suppose you can have control over and you can enjoy. So to be honest, I'm okay. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm particularly particularly overjoyed at the position we're all in at the moment but you know it is what it is exactly and I think you're definitely making the most of it with all your work at blokes one thing that really gave me a bit of like a weird nostalgia trip right so when we were chatting off air and I was putting your number into my phone because your name is Tom Home I had this weird like childhood nostalgia throwback do you know when you're putting in phone numbers when you were like eight and nine years old and it was like Tom Home Tom Mob yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh no, no. It's one of those. Uh, it's an it's an unusual surname. Unusual surname. Well, your work rate with blokes is unreal, and your journey is just as action packed. So, shall we just get on with the show? <laughs> blokes is your baby, and the reason we're chatting today, mate. So, let's start off with this. Tell me a bit about why you started it. What inspired you to give it a go? And why did you spell the name with a capital O in the middle of the world? Was that a bit of edgy branding? So the reason why I founded Blokes was, so since I was diagnosed with anxiety, depression and post-traumatic stress disorder in November 2016, which was just the start of my second year at uni, I've always become, or not always have become, I've always wanted to do something around men's mental health in terms of encouraging men to acknowledge their mental health, to talk about their thoughts and feelings, and more importantly, not be embarrassed to, to kind of do that. So I think the question kind of ties in, I suppose, with my journey a little bit, which was, you know, I went from being someone who 
was playing a lot of rugby, seeing friends, seeing family, and just spending time really how you would expect you know, a uni student to be spending time. And in the space of a couple of weeks, I stopped playing rugby, stopped seeing friends, really cut myself off from my family. I wouldn't even reply to texts or phone calls. And I just didn't want to be around anyone else, whether that was virtually or in person. So I would very rarely leave the house unless it was absolutely necessary to do so. Would very, very rarely leave my room. I just wanted to be on my own all the time. And yeah, I think it was only when I kind of got to my lowest point that I, and I did reach out to my friends and family and said, look, there's something not right here. I am struggling. I don't know where to turn to for help. I suppose that's, that kind of started the ball rolling for me because I went down the classic routes that a lot of people do, went to the GP, was put on antidepressants and was referred to have one-to-one counselling, CBT, mindfulness sessions, hypnotherapy sessions, all these different types of kind of professional services. And while don't get me wrong, all of the things I just listed are fantastic and do so many amazing things for so many people. I think the problem is, I suppose, and again, it's not exactly breaking news, but the mental health is very much deemed as a one size fits all approach, which I think is a bit of a shame. I kind of went to all these different sessions and I just didn't feel that I was getting the benefit out of them. And that was due to a couple of reasons. First and foremost is I had convinced myself that it wasn't working and it wasn't going to work and I wasn't going to get any better. I was damaged beyond repair, which really kind of made me put this guard up and really kind of stopped me from getting the benefit out of those sessions. And I think second of all, kind of as a result of that, I didn't really strike up a particularly good relationship with the guys and girls that I was having these sessions with. And I suppose it was only really then when I kind of felt like I'd exhausted all my options that I just started to talk to my friends about it and my family about it. And it just was being really, really honest and really kind of transparent with how I was feeling and what I was thinking and basically what was going on inside my head. I think for me, it was very much about building that trust between my friends and and my family and myself. And I really did get the benefit out of just speaking honestly and openly with them and I think then that was the first time I had really seen and experienced the benefits that just talking on a day-to-day on a week-to-week basis with those who are very much a massive part of your life about mental health just how much of an impact that can have on you positively and uni came and went and as I say this all kind of really I suppose came to a head at the beginning of my second year graduated in June 2018 and like a lot of uni students I think when you kind of leave uni you're so focused on trying to get your foot in the job door and you're so focused on trying to get some work and get some money in your pocket and you know start your kind of career path the blokes not blokes but this idea for wanting to do something around men's mental health unfortunately kind of took a back seat I think the lockdown the first lockdown that we had at the kind of start of last year it gave me the opportunity to actually sit down and think about what I wanted to do around men's mental health and it was always going to be centered around that conversation communication element and yeah that's kind of to be honest where blokes was born and in terms of the O and the K being capital in the middle and being a different color I think it's very much trying to I suppose drive home the message that lads it is okay not to be okay it is okay to talk about your mental health it is okay to have down days and you shouldn't think or let anybody else make you think otherwise. And during the bloke's journey, mate, what challenges have you encountered in it and how have you tackled them? 
So Blokes, first and foremost, is a not-for-profit community interest company, which essentially means any money that we raise through donations, clothing sales, fundraising, is basically put back into what we're trying to do to support our partner clubs, partner organisations, to facilitate mental health education, awareness programs, whatever it may be, just to support the members and, and kind of the people in their local communities. So obviously, first and foremost, one of the main problems we had was obviously because of COVID, lockdown, social distancing, it massively put the brakes on any sort of fundraising plans or events we had we wanted to go ahead with. And I think also, while I wouldn't necessarily put this under a challenge, for me and myself, it has been a personal challenge because blokes is something that's a labour of love for me. I still work nine to half five, five days a week. So for me, it's been fitting blokes in around that. Been a lot of early mornings, a lot of late nights, a lot of a lot of long weekends. So I think in terms of certainly the last, I mean, seven, eight months since blokes has been going, it's been difficult to try and I suppose, switch off from it. You know, even if I've got away for a weekend with my partner or even if I've just got a day off work, you know, your mind's always ticking and your mind's always thinking about the next step and what, you know, how you can make this better, how you can make it better for other people. I mean, I'm somebody who likes to be busy all the time anyway, but yeah, it's been quite mentally draining over the last six months. But if I'm being honest, I wouldn't change it for the world because I've loved every minute of doing it. And hopefully it's helped some other guys to talk about their mental health. When it comes to men's mental health, mate, we're both very keen to challenge toxic masculinity and put it in a very small minority, but also, and we'll come on to your journey, we'll come on to the mental health chat later, about this idea of positive masculinity and making masculinity just positive. When it comes to blokes, with the word itself, are you also trying to redefine what that word means as well? Yeah, I think with the word blokes, it's quite an informal word. It's there with the likes of, you know, mate, pal, bro, whatever. And because they're sort of words that you would probably hear in a, in a conversation with your mates most times you speak to them, I kind of want that to transcribe into a conversation around mental health. I want that also to become commonplace, you know, commonplace in conversation between men. I don't mean you meet up with your friends for a beer or a coffee and you say, how's your mental health today, mate? That's not what I'm talking about. But, you know, if someone says, oh, how are you doing? Instead of just feeling like you have to say, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm all right. Actually saying, do you know what? I'm actually not. I've had a bit of a rough week. I've, you know, not had the best week at work or lockdown's getting to me or, you know, I've just been feeling really anxious the last couple of weeks. So it's just about small ways to open up the conversation more regularly between guys. When we spoke off air, mate, you told me one massive milestone for you and blokes was the partnership you made with the Knox County Foundation. Can you tell me more about that and why it meant a lot to you and your mental health? Yeah, definitely. So obviously the Knox County Foundation are the kind of charitable arm of the club and me being an East Midlands lad, albeit a Forest fan. I just think I have seen firsthand, whether it be through helping them out with the odd bit of PR or the odd bit of marketing or whatever, I've seen the amazing work that they're doing and the genuine difference that they're making in Nottinghamshire area. And I know it sounds like a really weird thing to say, but they're just a really good group of people, like genuinely good, wholehearted people who care so much about other people. And I think for me, one of the things that I definitely, I want to do is try and make an impact closer to home as well. Because obviously, as I say, being based around Nottingham, Leicester, these kind of areas, obviously, that classic phrase, charity starts at home. So first and foremost, I, I just want to help support the local teams, local organisations, local clubs as much as possible. 
And I think, as I said, COVID definitely put the brakes on a lot of plans that we had last year. But, you know, 2021, it's a new year, new opportunities. And I think there's definitely a lot more to come from the partnership this year. Another big milestone you're pretty proud of, mate, are the professional sports people you've got signed on as ambassadors. How did that come about? And what does having them on board at Blokes mean to you? Because let's be real, when I've got my own sports series for the podcast, it's not easy making those contacts. <laughs> no, you're definitely right. And to be honest, obviously, as I say, I'm a massive rugby fan. So, you know, I've known of the mental health stories of the likes of Tom Lindsay and Alex Reader, Dan Mugford. And to be honest, when I first started Blokes, I just sent a couple of hopeful DMs. It was from there that I very much just wanted them to be there to help support this positive message and try and promote what we were trying to do. Not for any reasons of vanity, just to be honest, because, you know, funnily enough, they're a lot more well-known than I am. <laughs> and I just thought, you know, they've used their platform in the past to push so many fantastic messages around mental health that I thought I would be so honoured to get them all on board. And you know, we're so lucky now where we have ambassadors from rugby union, rugby league, boxing, athletics, cricket, but not even just sport, though. We've got so many amazing ambassadors who are members of the media or very, very well known in the music world. And I think for me, that means a lot because it really does appeal to well, I like to think that it appeals to men from all walks of life. And I know looking from the outside in, blokes may seem like it's very sport orientated. And I think that's probably just because of, I suppose, my passion towards sport. But let me just put that to bed that the fact that whether you like sport, art, music, whatever, blokes is for you, blokes is for everybody, blokes is for any man that feels like that he's not had a platform or not had the opportunity to talk about his mental health before. And just sorry, just jumping back into your original question, just sent a lot of DMs to these guys or was put in touch by mutual friends. And yeah, just just sort of said, look, guys, this is what I'm thinking of doing. I'd be really keen to have you on board because obviously I know the amazing stuff and the amazing messages that you've been putting out in the mental health space. And I can't think of any better people to kind of champion what we're trying to do. Doing blokes for, I guess, as short a time as you have, even so, what has it taught you about yourself, do you think? I think I've always been somebody who's had slight self-esteem issues. I think I've always been a very self-conscious person. I think that's definitely stemmed from my childhood. For no other reason than classic, I was always kind of the bigger kid at school. I think I was always almost felt these feelings of shame, guilt and embarrassment. I had a great childhood, first and foremost. I have great friends, great family. I was never bullied. So it was never anything sort of around that. It was more just my own self-perception. And I think it's taught me to be more confident my own ability and more confident in my ability to actually achieve things that again yeah that's talking about me personally but I also think it's helped me realize that something positive can come out of a bad mental health experience it's helped me realize that although you know the last four or five years of my life have really been tainted by mental health problems that it's almost a bit of a silver lining that something good can come out of a seemingly desperate situation that's a beautiful thing you've just said there, mate. As a final question, and just so I can promote blokes as much as I can through Vent, how do you plan to take blokes forward in the future? Are there any bigger plans you can share with me as a Vent exclusive? Um, where can people find you on social media? I think first and foremost, the one thing that I really want to try and do this year is to repay the faith and repay the kind of generosity that our partner clubs and organisations have had in blokes because, you know, I can fully appreciate that the last six months have been incredibly frustrating and especially for grassroots sports clubs, you know, not having their members playing, not being able to host functions or sell food, sell drinks. So I think I want to do my absolute best 
to support them in any way that I can because grassroots sports clubs have given me so much in my life. They've given me friendships. They've given me opportunities. They've given me the chance to visit new places that I really want to do anything and everything that I can to support the people that use them because I think now more than ever, they really are and have become a hub for the community. So yeah, I think in terms of where it's looking down the road, only time will tell. But in terms of where people can find us as well, we're on Twitter and Instagram at at underscore blokes. On Facebook, we're at blokescic. And you can find our website at www.blokes.life and you can pick up some sick merch just like the one I've got on my head. We talked a lot about blokes and all the great work you're doing there, Tom. I want to go a bit deeper and talk about your own journey here in a bit more depth. So you've answered it a little bit already, but talk to me about your early life if you can, maybe your teenage years and adolescence. And looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Tom we meet here? As I've kind of already touched on, I suppose from a medical perspective, I was diagnosed with my mental health problems in November 2016. But, you know, I look back and I definitely think that that wasn't the start of them. I think being someone who was very self-conscious about what other people thought about me and I'm not somebody who likes conflict I like to think that I'm a nice person who gets on with most people that he meets I was always really kind of worried about what people would think about me you know whether that be what I said or even like the way I was standing or the way I wasn't engaging when I was talking with someone or you know little things that probably seemingly don't seem that big of a deal to so many people you know you spend days and days kicking yourself for so I think moving on more into my first year at uni in particular I was you know typical fresher was going out a lot and was definitely not committing as much time to doing what I was at uni to do I was playing rugby a couple of times a week was going out with the lads I played rugby with and there would be times where I would go out on a Wednesday night and I would you know on a Thursday morning I would wake up back in my uni halls and I'd have these overwhelming feelings of embarrassment and guilt and I think that's not necessarily because of anything that happened or anything that I did or said it was just because you know let's be honest uni rugby players have a certain stereotype that goes with it I think it's so easy to get caught up in trying to fit that mold rather than being true to who you are as a person at the time when I had all these overwhelming feelings of guilt and embarrassment I would definitely just put them down to Oh, you're just a bit hungover or, you know, just sleep on it. You'll be fine the next day. It would just be this endless cycle of suppressing how I was actually feeling. Looking back, it was very much more than just a hangover. It was very much, no, this is kind of these underlying feelings of anxiety you're kind of pushing deep down. So my trigger, I suppose, was, or what I see to be my trigger was because rugby for probably upwards of 13 years has been such a massive part of my life. As I mentioned, it's given me the opportunity to meet people, the opportunity to go to different places and and see different things. I was dropped at the start of my second year from the rugby team and that just hit me so hard because regardless of where I've been in my life or what had been going on at the time, rugby had always been the one thing for me that was always constant. And I think when I had that taken away, and, you know, a lot of my first year uni friendships have been based around rugby and you know that's kind of the one thing the glue that was holding everyone together when I didn't have that in my life anymore when I had that taken away from me by the way from absolutely no fault of anybody else's completely my fault I hadn't trained hard enough over the summer I'd been a bit complacent thinking that it wouldn't be that hard to get my place back and 
you know, get overly comfortable with the situation you're in and that's what happens. So I kind of felt like because I was no longer part of the rugby squad, I was almost going to be seen as a bit of an outcast. And I felt like I couldn't hang around with them anymore. I couldn't go out with them. I couldn't join them with any of the banter. I couldn't just couldn't really be associated with them anymore. And that kind of left me feeling quite alone. And also along with that, it was just these overwhelming feelings of embarrassment, being ashamed, feeling like I'd been humiliated because they're fantastic rugby players. Most of the lads who I was really friendly with got back in the team and life carried on very much as normal for them. But for me, because I no longer had rugby in my life, I kind of felt like I had to find something else that made me me. I know for a lot of people who are listening, it might be like, oh, you know, we just got dropped. It's not a big deal. But for what is seemingly a small problem or a small thing for someone is a huge deal for someone else. And I kind of felt like because I wasn't playing rugby anymore, I'd lost this sense of identity as to who I was. I think that's kind of firstly with my main problem was I felt that my ability to play rugby defined me and made me me when it wasn't that, you know, that, that wasn't the case at all. That's kind of when I slowly started to isolate myself and slowly started to be more alone with my thoughts because I felt that I'd lost everything that not meant something to me, but I'd lost everything that I suppose really kind of got me through the day, really. That's kind of when all the anxiety and the depression and kind of the intrusive thoughts really started to overflow. And it's kind of when everything came to a head. I look back now and in that second year at uni, from the time that I actually started it in the late August, beginning of September to where I was at Christmas. It's like two, honestly two different people because obviously people were kind of noticing that, that I, I was a complete polar opposite to how I usually would be. And obviously people were sort of saying, what's up? You know, you're not yourself. But I just completely shut them down and was like, no, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Just don't ask. I'm fine. I think because I didn't have a very good knowledge and understanding of how mental health can impact you, I maybe hadn't really educated myself as to where these thoughts may be coming from or I suppose how it would affect me to actually try and deal with this on my own. You know as you said you went from this bubbly outgoing guy to suddenly feeling isolated, hyper anxious, paranoid and at one point I think you mentioned saying you had this I guess an induced form of agoraphobia such was your fear of kind of leaving the house. When it came to friends and housemates noticing that dramatic change how long did it take you to notice it in yourself do you think? I think there very much was a sense of being in denial. Men are very good at kind of shoehorning in a scenario or a reason as to why they're feeling a certain way rather than actually putting it down to being anxious or whatever it may be. And I think for me, it's difficult because I don't remember a specific moment where I was like, you are different, Tom. I think it was it was probably when I, I maybe was doing stuff like laying in bed later would be not bothering to get up and go to lectures I maybe wouldn't take a shower one day which is not like me my self-care would just be going out the window and again that's diet that's keeping yourself clean and when those things started to happen that was probably when I thought you know there's something not right here you've never been like this you know not having a shower not having a balanced diet not doing exercise this has never been you they've always been three kind of staples of of you know how you live your life and I think when I noticed myself pushing those to the side in favour of almost just laying in bed and feeling sorry for myself, that's kind of when I first got an idea that I probably wasn't okay. Before we touch on your therapy journey, I just want to go back a little bit if we can, because there was a moment we talked about off air, which I think might have a link to how you began to feel as you got older. You said to me that you are an only child and you don't 
have a massively close relationship with your extended family. One thing you said which really struck me was when other kids are talking about Christmases and what they're going to do and who they're going to spend time with and saying, oh, I'm going to go to my auntie's and my cousin's house for Christmas. You didn't have that. Was there an element of sadness or FOMO that you got at the time? And did it become normalised? Or did it end up having an effect on any anxiety feelings when you got older? Yeah, I think obviously, I grew up with that very much being the norm. So I think I almost never really knew what I was missing out on or never really knew what doing something other than not spending it with family felt like. I think there was almost this feeling of not being normal. But again, what is normal? You know, it's such a subjective question. Around sort of Christmas times and summer holidays and stuff where people would be saying, oh, you know, we're going on a family holiday to Greece with my cousins and my auntie and my uncle and whatever. Or Christmas, oh, you know, we've got 15 of us on Christmas Day, you know, stuff like that. There was this kind of feeling of, that sounds really nice. That sounds like the way that a functional family would be working. I think there was almost this, I suppose I've never really thought about this too much. And I think it was definitely something that I saw as not normal. And I think when you're part of a situation that maybe isn't deemed to be normal, I think you can be forgiven for actually thinking that you're the problem. So, yeah, I think definitely you kind of add this unnecessary and not necessarily true weight on your shoulders. Again, it, it kind of sits in line with those feelings of worthlessness and those feelings of you not being good enough and, you know, the feelings of being an outsider. So, yeah, I think it all goes hand in hand. It's probably very much related. When you were in those darkest moments, Tom, when it came to your mental health, what got you through it, do you think? I think for me, and I say this every time I talk about it, I am truly blessed and in a very fortunate situation where my two or three best friends are genuinely like brothers. I couldn't ask for better friends. And again, I have an amazing fiance with an amazing family. And my mum and dad are two of the most amazing people I've ever met or ever had the pleasure of knowing in my life and regardless of what I've done or where I've been or what I've wanted to do my parents in particular have always supported me and they've always let me know that I'm I'm loved I'm cared about I'm important to them and I think that kind of feeling that you matter that much to people regardless of what the anxiety tells you or what your mental health tells you to actually have it reinforced that you are cared for that much makes a massive difference or it certainly did to me so really my parents she was my girlfriend at the time but now fiance and two or three best friends hands down single-handedly were the support network that got me through it because without them I wouldn't have been able to cope on my own I wouldn't have been able to cope in general and I think as I said being in a very fortunate situation where I have those very clear support networks but for a lot of people who maybe aren't as close with friends or family or have distanced themselves or maybe just don't have those connections, you know, it can be so easy to fall in the mindset of you're alone, no one cares about you, you don't matter to anybody, it wouldn't make a difference if you weren't here. It's just not true. I think that's almost one of the other underlying messages with blokes is that even if you don't feel that you matter, more than anything, you matter to me, you matter to the other guys that a part of this bloke's community you may not have actually met them you may not have actually met me but I care about you just as much as I would care about the next person and even though you might feel that you're alone you're not alone it was so heartbreaking over Christmas in particular to read the amount of tweets and Facebook messages or not 
Facebook messages, but Facebook posts on my timelines of people that were spending Christmas alone. You know, while that doesn't necessarily lend itself to poor mental health, it must be so difficult physically being on your own, let alone mentally as well being on your own. And yeah, I just think it's so important for people to remember that although they may not see a light at the end of the tunnel and they may not feel that they matter, they do matter to somebody somewhere. And that is why I'm so passionate about just opening up this dialogue about, again, not necessarily directly mental health, but thoughts and feelings. And even just letting somebody know that you care about them or you're thinking of them, that can make such a huge difference to somebody's day, week, month, whatever it may be. And I just think sending a text or making that phone call is often seen as such a seemingly unimportant and trivial thing. But in the grand scheme of things, it can make such a massive, massive difference. I think as well, the pandemic has shown that more importantly now so than ever, connection really is one of the only things that we have. While we can't see friends and we can't see family, that doesn't mean that we can't check in on them. It doesn't mean that we can't let them know that we love them, we care about them, we're thinking of them and and that they're not alone. From what you said there, mate, it sounds like the behaviour and characteristics that your two or three best mates showed you at that point was almost a spark for you to create blokes. And the behaviour that they showed was what you wanted to mirror in blokes. Let's pretend they're listening to this pod, and I'm sure they are. What do you think you would say to them? First and foremost, I wouldn't be here now without you. There are the words to thank you for the support and the help that you gave me, because I know they've very much seen me at my lowest and they've seen me at my highest. And I just think not a lot of guys in particular would show the patience and the empathy and the genuine interest in your well-being that they did. It's difficult because it genuinely is hard to find the words because when they've had or when people have had such a huge impact on your road to recovery, thank you. It doesn't cut it because they've genuinely changed your life. And I know it, it sounds so cliche to a lot of people listening, but it's so true. I think having a support network around you of people who aren't necessarily quote-unquote qualified to talk about mental health, people who just there are to support you through your darkest days, it just makes all the difference. When it came to the cognitive behavioural therapy you had, Tom, and you received, can you tell me about if it helped you? And also, you told me off air that eventually you had to seek private treatment as the options you were given by the university just didn't quite cut it, did they? Yeah, so I suppose I'm going to start out with the kind of uni counselling, if you don't mind. First and foremost, Northumbria Uni, huge shout out to you because I felt certainly by the student wellbeing department was massively supported and was definitely supported in, I suppose, finding a treatment that at the time seemed right for me. But I think uni mental health services are so overwhelmed most of the time that it's easy to understand why people can't get more. They can have a session and then they have to wait three weeks for a next session. But for a lot of people, and me included in that category at the time, it just wasn't enough. I needed to be doing something regularly, a regular time on a regular day. Because I think it's quite daunting when you have a, you know, something like a uni counselling session and you don't know when the next one's going to be. Because you kind of feel that between now and then, you have to keep everything bottled up and you can't speak to anybody about it. So, yeah, that's kind of when I had to look for private treatment because, as I say, I needed something more regular. I found a really good counsellor in Jesmond in Newcastle who I went to for about two months. But I think it just wasn't sustainable because being a uni student, you can't be paying 
well, not that you can't be, but it's difficult to kind of commit 50, 60 quid a week to counselling. And again, that's not saying, oh, you'd use it to go out with. But 50, 60 quid to a uni student is a lot of money. It's a lot of money in general. But I think it was just for me, you know, while I definitely did see some benefits from being able to talk to a total stranger, <laughs> I think I definitely kind of felt that I couldn't keep committing to it. And again, like I said, by no means am I saying counselling's bad, CBT is bad, because I'm not at all. Both of them are fantastic services who do so many fantastic things for loads and loads of different people. But speaking purely from my perspective and my experience, I didn't get on with them. In terms of the CBT, again, CBT was the first kind of service that I tried. To be honest, I went into it with a bit of an arrogant mindset. I went into it with, oh, it's just going to be about picturing a calm lake. It's just going to be about picturing boats going past. It's so stereotypical that that's kind of what CBT is associated with. And I think because of my arrogance in going into it, I just automatically told myself it wasn't going to work and it was going to be a waste of time and I was going to be wasting my time. I was going to be wasting the therapist time, you know, and little little things which, again, people who have done CBT will, will understand, you know, we were sent home with little bits of homework to do. I just wouldn't do it. I literally would go back to my room, throw it on my desk and I wouldn't look at it again until the next session. And when I took it with me, I'd make it some excuse why I hadn't done it. So very much for me, CBT, the reason that I didn't get the most out of CBT was very much, I'd say, my own fault. But, you know, it's definitely not something I'd rule out having another go at now that I've uh, opened my mind up a little bit. I want to bring it back to rugby a bit now because you've got a little bit of a, not love-hate relationship, but you've certainly had some difficulties with rugby in the past, mate. There's a really interesting discussion I wanted to have in regards to a holistic discussion, which is about the good times you've had, but also about things like dressing room culture and maybe toxic masculinity. So shall we talk about the good things first? What are the great things that rugby gave you in terms of an identity, connections with friends, good times and everything in between? Yeah, definitely. So I kind of first got into rugby when I was about maybe eight or nine. I come from a really rugby interested family. So played it at school, was playing at my local club from the age of 10 or 11 up until 17. And, you know, as you say, it's given me the opportunity to meet a lot of really, really cool people and to go on tour to different places and visit different places. And it's given me the chance to travel the world and go to go and play in South Africa, go and play in New Zealand. So for me, it really has been such an anchor for me in the last 15 years. And, you know, also doing really cool stuff like I, a couple of years ago, got my level two coaching qualifications. And again, it allowed me to coach in South Africa, coach in England, coach in New Zealand. So it's given me a lot of really happy memories. I have a lot of happy times around rugby. Let's talk a bit about dressing room culture in regards to university rugby now, because there is a stereotype that people have about uni rugby lads. And I guess it's because that 18 to 21 bracket is such an impressionable age, especially if you've got third year players who can maybe corrupt the first year lads or don't set an example. You gave me this really interesting perspective off air, which is how a guy talks to someone one to one as opposed to in a group and how they change their behavior based on that accordingly how do you see that concept play out in rugby from a mental health perspective in regards to if toxic behaviors might creep in i think you've kind of hit the nail right on the head there i think there is a very much this dressing room culture but it isn't just confined to the dressing room it literally is as soon as you're putting on your uni rugby tie or your shirt or whatever it is i think you automatically feel like you have to turn into this dickhead like this, this arsehole you do how people behave and how they are within a group of 40 50 lads where it's all about bravado it's all about who can drink the most it's all about who can drink the quickest and 
I think in comparison to how they are within a group of people like that, in comparison to how they are on their own, is completely different complete polar opposites i'm not slamming anybody else because i was that in first year you know i behaved so differently in a group of rugby players than i did on my own which is why i had this bit of self-identity crisis because i didn't really know who i was in terms of being from a mental health perspective i definitely feel that and again i'm not speaking for anybody else but myself i'm just speaking from my own experiences i definitely think that because there is this masculine stereotype and this this, as I've already mentioned, this bravado that goes with playing uni rugby, I definitely feel like people would be very hesitant to talk about their mental health, particularly to the lads they play rugby with, because I think in a lot of people's minds, it shows weakness. I think it shows that, or I think people think that it shows that you're not a man and you're not strong. You're not one of the boys. I think there is still a massive problem around that in uni rugby. Like, don't get me wrong. There are so many organisations and so many unis doing really great things to kind of tackle that stereotype. But I think when you're actually immersed in that culture, it can be so easy to go along with a particular or to kind of try and fit in with a particular image. And, and you know, lads that I played rugby with at uni who honestly, like genuinely some of the nicest boys you'll ever meet, really, really genuinely down to earth, nice guys. When you're one-to-one with them or in a really small group, and you're not in that kind of masculine setting, you know, you might be going out for some food or you might be going for a coffee, completely, completely different people. And I think that's a really dangerous catalyst, as I say, for people having this self-identity and this crisis of self-perception. Because ultimately, I like to think that the headspace I'm in now and how I am as a person, I can be in a room full of 100 people or I could be having a conversation with somebody on a one-to-one basis, but it's still me I'm still saying the same things I'm still acting the same behaving the same I'm not changing and it's so important to recognize that it's like even little things when you're a teenager or a child you know people get saying oh stop showing off just because you know there's five people around or there's 10 people around you know it very much like if we're going to speak really blatantly it really is like that stop pretending to be something that you're not that's kind of I suppose in a nutshell my love-hate relationship with rugby but I think on the whole I still love the game, giving me so many amazing opportunities. And more importantly, mental health within the game of rugby in particular is something that is definitely having the spotlight shone on it more. Before we talk about the positive stuff when it comes to local rugby clubs, mate, because that's something I'm really passionate about highlighting as opposed to maybe the stereotype that some people see when it comes to uni rugby or the darker sides of uni rugby. I guess what you touched on there about the pressures to fit in is a really big point. And I think when it comes to kids leaving school, they think they're leaving school behind. And in many ways they do. But in university, those school pressures, those school cliches, they still exist. And I think for sports teams, well, for a lot of universities anyway, those sports teams are treated like gods. And if you want to get into those sports teams, that is a status symbol. Do you think that's a problem from a mental health perspective for a lot of these lads? I definitely think that it does play a huge part because I almost feel, I mean, even before they've got to uni, it adds this pressure. But certainly those who have gone from school rugby to uni rugby know that it's a completely different step up and it's a huge, huge change. And obviously, more importantly, there are 10 times the amount of guys who you're competing against to get in the team. I think it's a massive problem in terms of if lads go from school to uni and don't get in the team or get in the squad it makes them feel like they're not good enough and they're a loser. And I think as well, like very much like I went through, you kind of feel like rugby being such a massive thing that's defined or that you supposedly thought defined you for so long. When you have that taken away from you, you almost feel that, what am I going to do now? I don't feel like I have anywhere to go or any other options of what to do. So I do think it is a bit of a problem. Or well, certainly I found it was a problem anyway. 
Going back to what I said about the local rugby club factor, mate, I think what some people don't understand is when they see how important local rugby clubs are in their communities, which are largely, on the whole, not filled with sort of toxic behaviour. Tell the listeners about the comparison you told me off air about what male university rugby players might do, which may not help the culture, and what local male rugby teams might do, which helps the culture. It's kind of difficult for me to comment on my own experiences because as I say I only really played at my local club up until the age of 17 so I never really saw life beyond that but you know obviously I've still got friends that play who are 24, 25, 26 that play for for local rugby clubs and who didn't necessarily play themselves for university teams but I mean don't get me wrong I still think regardless of club or uni I still think there is this not toxic masculinity but there is almost this kind of underlying stereotype of it being a bit of a laddie culture but I definitely think it's hugely watered down at local clubs because I think you have so many different men from so many different walks of life different ages some of them have kids some of them have families I think certainly guys who play at local rugby clubs have a very different or can have a very different outlook on life it's not all about who can drink the most who can be the loudest you know who can be the most laddie most people that play at a club like a local club obviously are working during the week they'll go to the training on Tuesday nights Thursday nights game on a Saturday and then they'll be back to work on Monday so I almost feel like club rugby is a great way for a lot of people to let off some steam enjoy life have some fun and do something that they really love doing where as I say for me in my first year at uni rugby was everything didn't really care about lectures I didn't really care about anybody that wasn't in the rugby team and my week and my weekends would be completely consumed with either playing rugby, rugby training or going out with the lads that I was doing both of those with. So yeah, there's a hugely different perception that both give. Don't get me wrong, I know it sounds like I'm completely bashing uni rugby, but I'm not at all because I'm just speaking from my own experiences. You know, I can't speak for anybody else. I can't speak for any other unis. And also, don't get me wrong, all the lads I played rugby with at uni are genuinely nice guys and mean really, really well. I think, to be honest, you know, everything with it, with the anxiety and the self-identity crisis and getting dropped. And I think all of that just really came to a head. And I, I think had I been in, I suppose, the mindset of, of where I am now, I probably would have had a different experience. But I just think at the time, I think I look back and I can definitely see that I just wasn't in a good place at the time. On body image, mate, you've spoken a little bit about your experiences when you were a child and when you were a teenager. When it came to rugby, obviously... Rugby is heralded because loads of different body types can succeed and be in rugby. You know, you've got the stereotypical props, you've got the big six foot seven second rows, you've got the backs who are preened and stereotypically good looking and stuff like that, or have the most chat. But when it comes to your body image, did you ever get physical comparison culture when you looked at some of your teammates? Definitely, 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 definitely. I'm somebody who sporadically goes to the gym. I'm not somebody that lives in the gym. I'm not somebody who completely dedicates his life to health and fitness. I think for me, you know, I would often look at other lads that were playing the same position as me and they were like absolutely ripped and they were big, big, stocky lads. And I play hooker. So, I mean, I would look at somebody who played in the same position as me and who was squatting 120 kilos and bench pressing 120 kilos and and I couldn't even get anywhere near that and that made me feel that I wasn't good enough and that made me, and again this is nothing to do with them it's, it's all to do with my own perception of self-value but I have no embarrassment in saying it. if I was benching like 60 kilos I would think that everyone's looking at me and thinking Jesus Christ he's so weak he's like surely that's not all you can lift 
I think it was really unhealthy of me to compare myself to other guys in that vein because realistically speaking, they didn't care. They literally did not care whatsoever. But I think for me, it was almost because I can't lift as much because I've not got as big a muscles as they do because I, I'm not as quick as them. That automatically means I'm not as good as them as a person. So yeah, I definitely think body image, certainly from about 18 onwards, became a bit of a thing for me. There's been a lot of great strides in portraying more realistic female body images in popular culture and progressing that conversation along. Do you think male body image is discussed enough in mainstream conversation? I think it's a bit of a weird one because my personal stance on it at the moment is either men are classified to have a good physique or a dad bod. And I feel like there's absolutely no middle ground. Or And I feel like the perception of having a dad bod is almost seen as something that's really funny. It's something that should be like, I don't know, it's something that should be not laughed at, but something that should be like really lighthearted. But I consider myself kind of dad bod. I'm a chunky guy, but I'm now, I'm comfortable with how I look. I mean, I wouldn't mind being slightly slimmer, but I'm not embarrassed by who I am. I'm not embarrassed with my body. And little things like you'll go on Facebook and you go on Lad Bible and you'll see all these videos. It's like, or going up to girls and asking whether they'd prefer a guy with a dad board or a six pack. And it's just like, for me personally, I don't really like saying that because I just think they shouldn't be the only two categories that guys put themselves in. Because realistically, as long as you're happy, as long as you're happy, as long as you're fulfilled, as long as you, you know, I'm going to cut all the rubbish. As long as you're happy and as long as you are comfortable in your own skin, that's all that matters. It doesn't matter what other people say. It doesn't matter what other people think. In terms of guys with their body image, I think we've just got to all learn to give ourselves a break. We don't have to have these washboard abs. We don't have to have huge arms. We don't have to have massive shoulders. I think we've just got to all be happy with how we are and how we were made. And and I think we've all got to appreciate what we do have rather than what we don't have. I completely agree with you there, mate. And I think it's really unfair to put men into these binary physical categories. One thing that does annoy me quite a lot is that when you do see the examples that you've raised about Lab Bible or whoever it is, you always see like dad bods being praised or it will say like Leonardo DiCaprio has a dad bod. I'm like, well, those women will love that because it's Leonardo DiCaprio. If you actually went up to someone and said, look at all these very overweight geezers on a beach, which one would you pick? They, unless it's Leonardo DiCaprio, they're not going to pick them, are they? No, that's, it's so true. I think it's a bit of a weird one because I think it's a bit of a double-edged sword, really, because I think, obviously, if you've got somebody saying, oh, look at Leonardo DiCaprio, has got a dad bod, it's almost trying to say that, oh, it's okay to have a dad bod because Leonardo DiCaprio's got a dad bod. No, it wouldn't matter if Leonardo DiCaprio had a six-pack or had a dad bod. It's fine for you to be you. As long as you're healthy, you're happy, and you're content with who you are and what you stand for, it doesn't matter what you look like. And just as a final question on this topic, Tom, given all you've been through, if you could go back and speak to that 20-year-old Tom who was struggling with his body, anxiety, depression, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? Honestly, I would say give yourself a break. And more importantly, stop ignoring the obvious cues that you are anxious. Stop ignoring the obvious cues that you're not okay. Don't wait for it to get to a point where you feel that you are so worthless that you don't matter. And also don't be ashamed to, don't be scared to stand out from the crowd and almost break that mould and break the stereotype because ultimately uni is only a three-year thing and you've got the rest of your life ahead of you. So I think for me, my main bit of advice would be give yourself a break, love to learn yourself and acknowledge the obvious cues, something's not quite right. 
Our final topic of conversation, Tom, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests, which is a general natter and chat about our mental health. So firstly, and you can definitely include the circumstances we are living in or exclude them. How would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? To be honest, the last week I've actually been feeling incredibly, incredibly anxious. I think, to be honest, not that I'm trying to, again, do what I said men do, which is shoehorning a reason why. But I mean, I, I always tend to find myself getting quite anxious at the start of a new year anyway, just because obviously you've got 12 months ahead of you. And I think I, I'm not being somebody who likes to necessarily plan for the next six months. I like to take things as they come. I like to take life day by day. It can be quite daunting to think how this year is going to play out because realistically we don't know. I definitely think I've found myself feeling more anxious and I definitely have found myself slipping back into doing the sort of not necessarily looking after my diet or not making sure that I get out and walk the dog or speak with other people. But for me, where I am now, I recognise that and I can do something to change that and address that. Whereas, you know, as I say, four or five years ago, I'd have just carried on. When it comes to your mental health, mate, when was the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health? And what happened when it did? Did you feel like a part of you had changed and this big burden and weight had been lifted? Or did it seem fairly insignificant and normalised at the time? I think the absolute very, very first person I spoke to about my mental health was someone at the Samaritans. And I, you know, was feeling the lowest I have ever felt, even to date, was having some quite upsetting and worrying thoughts. And I felt like I was on my own up at uni. Obviously, at the time, felt like because of all the masculine stereotypes that go with it, I didn't want to speak to my friends or my family or my girlfriend. I didn't know where to turn to. And I just typed in to Google. I mean, I can't remember what exactly it was, but it's something like taught somebody about your mental health. And obviously, Samaritan's number popped straight up, gave them a call. And I think then I must have been on the phone with them for about 45 minutes to an hour, just talking and talking and talking and talking. And obviously, some of the advice they gave me was maybe go and talk to a doctor or if you spoke to your parents about this or whatever. And I think I massively felt a huge weight off my shoulders then when I'd had that conversation, obviously, as you can imagine. It's like you've finally popped this cork on a bottle of champagne that's been slowly coming off for ages. And after that, I think a couple of days after, I think I was going home for a reading week or something. And I, yeah, just said to my mum and dad, look, I need to sit down and have a really serious chat with you. And yeah, we just spoke and spoke and spoke and got quite emotional. And then, yeah, that was kind of the step before, as I mentioned, I went to GP and got referred to therapy. So, but yeah, this the wave of relief that kind of comes over you and this wave of finally, I'm not on my own. Finally, I don't have to carry this burden on my own. And I think very much a lot of the time I didn't talk to my friends and family because I felt like I didn't want to be the burden. I didn't want to almost offload my worries and my troubles on other people. And it's it's completely understandable why people think like that. But that isn't the case at all. And it's that classic saying that a problem shared is a problem halved. And it really is true because the as soon as you start that ball rolling and take that first step, which is often the hardest, but often the bravest to actually say, I need some help. I'm really not coping on my own. Everything after that is positive and everything after that is moving in the right direction to get you the help that you need. And when it comes to your triggers, what ones do you have that affect your mental health positively or negatively? Or have you not figured all of them out yet? So I definitely know I haven't figured them all out. But for me, I think I can be quite guilty for comparing myself to other people on social media. I probably need to learn to give myself or learn to let myself have more of a break from social media. I also think another massive trigger for me is certainly I found this during lockdown is not getting out of the house regularly. You know, while I love my house and I love my living situation with my partner, 
I don't get out of the house at least once a day, whether that be taking the dog for a walk or driving to the supermarket or for essentials, by the way, <laughs> and uh, or whether that be, you know, even just taking a walk around the village, I can notice myself being in a really kind of deflated mindset. Not taking the time out for self-care and physical activity is a huge trigger for me. I also tend, and with a lot of people, not that I drink excessively, but I tend to find that when I find myself drinking more, and again, that might just be one beer a couple of times a week or a couple of beers a couple of times a week. Obviously, with alcohol being a depressant, that plays a massive part on my mental health. I mean, I'm currently in the middle of dry January at the moment, thankfully still sticking to it. And I've noticed I'm more productive, I'm more motivated, I'm more focused, and I was speaking to somebody on Twitter the other day. He'd been sober now for about two years. And he was saying, at the start, when you stop drinking, you literally gain back about a day a week. Because, you know, because if you've been drinking on a Friday night and you're not waking up until probably right about this time, half 11, 12 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon or late Saturday morning, you know, you're moping around the house and you're doing all this typical stuff that people do when they're hungover. That is a huge waste of a day. Whereas when you're not drinking and you're feeling a lot fresher, you can get up in a reasonable time you can go out and do that exercise you can make the most of your day so yeah that's definitely been a massive thing for me I mean I'd like to say that dry January is going to carry on but I mean I'm only going to do it well obviously I'm going to fin- I'm going to finish it but what I mean by carry on is whether I go into February March April rest of the year I'd be lying if I said that I'm going to do it because I don't know but I'm going to keep doing it until I feel that I don't want to do it anymore but I mean at the end of the day I've definitely come to realize that alcohol was a huge huge trigger for me well more importantly at uni than anything else i mean that would even stuff like beer fear would just absolutely cripple me for for days and again beer fear i could literally have gone to the pub and had one pint and then gone home and i'd have this beer fear for just days and days and days and days and honestly the anxiety has definitely made me realize i'm so creative because the amount of situations and stories that i came up with in my head are just completely unbelievable When it comes to your tools and methods used to help your mental health, mate, what ones have you found that have improved it? And maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? I mean, I've tried mindfulness and that sort of stuff. For me, that doesn't work. Or me, I've definitely found that it hasn't worked so far. You know, this isn't to say that I'm definitely not open to trying them again. For me, I suppose you could almost say it is a bit of a CBT method. But one thing I always tried to do was suppress the feelings of anxiety and suppress the negative thoughts I was having that would just make them stronger whereas if I am anxious about something just accept that that's a thought that you're having but that thought will pass one thing that's made me I suppose you could call it a coping mechanism or you could kind of call it more of a shift in mindset is worrying it sounds so hypocritical coming from me because I definitely have not always lived my life or lived my mental health years this way but worrying doesn't solve the problem it just adds to it and it's so 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 easy for people to say don't worry or this won't be here forever this too shall pass but it's so true that by just focusing on the worry and focusing on the thing that is making your anxiety so much worse that's just feeding it it's almost like a gremlin you feed it and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger if you're in a situation or an environment where you feel that your anxiety is tightened or you feel that your anxiety is thriving mentally and physically taking yourself out of that situation helps a lot i mean for example i'm sat in my office right now but if i was feeling anxious for any reason i would go either downstairs and spend time with the dog or i would go outside for a walk around the village or i would go and do something to take my mind off how i was feeling at that moment in time and i think 
while that isn't necessarily a solution, a long-term solution, it's definitely something that helps you to kind of ground you and bring you back down to reality at that time when it seems that your your mind's just going in a million different directions. We talked a lot about toxic masculinity already, Tom. So let's talk positive masculinity. Now, hopefully in a few more pods, as we said, masculinity will just be positive masculinity. What qualities do you think a man should exude to be described as positively masculine? Is it, for example, self-awareness? Is it empathy? Is it supporting your friends? Is it self-confidence? What can you tell me here? So in my opinion, and as I say, I'm not an expert on this. This is just my thoughts is I definitely think we need to, as men, to know that talking about thoughts and feelings isn't weak. It isn't something that men shouldn't do. It isn't embarrassing. I think as soon as we can get out of that habit of thinking that those things aren't manly or aren't how a man should be, the sooner we can do that, the better, because ultimately we want to try and create a culture and create a society where regardless of age, gender, sexuality, race, religion, whatever it may be, we can talk about how we're feeling. And it's like, for example, if you were going to go and meet one of your friends for a coffee or for at the pub and you strolled in with a cast on your foot with two crutches, you wouldn't just ignore it. It'd say, oh, God, mate, what, you're all right. What have you done to your foot? I didn't really, I, God, you're okay. Do you need any help with anything? Mental health is a visible disease and people don't walk around with an anxiety hat on or a depression hat, but it's still there. Just because you can't see it, it's still there and it still matters just as much as anything else. So I think it's so important that we acknowledge that people can be hurting, not just physically, but mentally. And, and obviously to actually understand how somebody is in themselves in terms of how they're feeling mentally, we have to know that it's it's okay to ask those questions and it is okay to talk about that sort of stuff. And it doesn't have to, because I think men in particular can be very quick when the topic does shift to mental health, that because it's seen as such a taboo and such a serious topic that loads of people just, yeah, it's like rabbit in headlights. They try and move on from the conversation as quickly as possible because A, they might feel uncomfortable or B, they might feel that they don't know what to say. But ultimately, that's how the conversation gets better by having them more regularly, knowing how somebody's feeling, knowing what their thoughts are. So ultimately, I think we all need to take a bit more time to educate ourselves around mental health and just know that it should be something that's spoken about all the time. Well, we have come to the end of the show and this episode of the Just Checking In podcast, I want to say a big, big thanks to Tom from Blokes for being my special guest on this episode and for checking in with me. I'll chuck some links to where you can follow Blokes on social media in the show notes and find out more about all the excellent work he and they are doing for men's mental health. As always, thank you to everyone who's tuned in for this episode. If you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it or please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, write us a review and support us at Patreon at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent. Listener.